Mark Patton began his career in the Broadway production of Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, directed by Robert Altman, starring Kathy Bates, Karen Black, and Cher. He then moved to Los Angeles for the film version. But it was his next big role on the big screen, playing Jesse Walsh in a surprisingly homoerotic A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, that turned his own Hollywood dream into a Hollywood nightmare. I need you, Jesse. We got special work to do here, you and me. You've got the body. I've got the brain. You think we should call the doctor? No. No, I'm fine. It's just a bad dream. Okay? Hi, I'm Mark Patton, actor, producer, political activist, actually now. I'm the star of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, Anna to the Infinite Power, and many, many more shows. How do you get from the Midwest to Broadway? I was very lucky, a really lucky kid. My dad was a Marine and a Teamster. My mother was incredibly, incredibly talented, but she had no education, and we were a poorer family. We didn't have a lot of money. I was a beautiful little boy. So kids, you know, how children are, they figure out pretty quickly. If you wonder about a child being gay, put a bunch of five-year-old boys together on a playground, and they will spot the gay kid within the first 30 seconds. They smell them, and they isolate them. So generally, they pick on them, unless they go into hiding really good. And I was never good at hiding. I'm very transparent. So I got picked on a lot. When did you know? I think I knew the day I was born, but I actually, my first memories of really being in touch with that was my brother and I had a bunk bed, and I built myself this incredible concoction of drapes and pillows, and I had myself all propped up, and I was being carried off to marry the king, right? But I wasn't a girl. I was very clearly a boy, and I was a boy marrying the king. And I was about four, four and a half, five years old then. But I knew that I shouldn't tell anybody this. I mean, it would be better to say that I was the queen than to say that I knew that I was the boy that was going to marry the king. I just knew that people didn't understand, and they didn't. Tell me about high school. My family was a little chaotic, and they didn't pay attention, and I hated school. I just despised it, but I loved the theater department. That kept me actually in school. My teacher took me under her wing, and she actually risked her job. I went to her one day and said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I really don't. She gave me two After Dark magazines, which could have gotten her fired, because that was a gay magazine in the 1970s about the theater in New York. And she said, you're going to go to New York and be an actor because you have everything that you need to succeed there. So you're going to get on a plane and you're going to get out of here and you're going to find a new world. And my girlfriend at the time bought me an airline ticket to New York, a one-way plane ticket to New York, for February 18, 1978. I'd never flown before. I'd never been to New York. And she read my diary a few days before and discovered that I was gay, <laughs> but never mentioned it. She was a wonderful, wonderful girl. I had $130, a one-way plane ticket to New York, and I got on a plane and I left. 
Well, how much of a change was it being in New York then? I stepped off the plane, and I breathed a sigh of relief, and I was safe for the first time in my life. I wasn't afraid. Everything that was a negative in Kansas City was a positive, especially in and around Greenwich Village was a positive. The way I walked was a positive. My mother always said I had like sort of a big ass, and I would keep my sweater way down. And the first time I walked down the street in New York and a guy whistled at me and it was okay, the sweater went right up and I realized I was a hot little guy, you know. And my imagination, the way I talked, the way I presented myself in the world was doors just flew open for me. The way I became an actor is the boy down the hall from where I lived was an actor. His name was Dan Monahan, and he was in the Poor Kids Revenge and all this kind of Porky's movies. And he made a lot of commercials. And I thought, if he can do it, I can do it. So I followed him to his agency, which was a management company. I got the address and I wrote it down because I couldn't ask. I didn't really know how to ask people to do things for me. And the next morning, I got all dressed up. And at nine o'clock, I walked up to the door. There was a big sign that said, if you're an actor, don't knock on the door. Just put your picture underneath and come back. And I thought, well, I'm not an actor yet. So I just knocked on the door, pounded on the door. And the owner of the agency opened the door. He was there early because the agency didn't open until 10. He said, what do you want? And I said, oh, I've come you know, to apply for a job as an actor. That's how naive I was, right? And he said, how old are you, kid? You know? And I said, I'm 18 years old now. And he said, OK, come back at 11 o'clock. So I went back at 11 o'clock, and he and his wife owned the agency. And they later told me they didn't care if I could act or I couldn't act. I was beautiful. I looked 12. I was 18. I didn't need a school teacher. They could make a fortune off me in commercials because I didn't have to have a teacher on set. I made my first commercial three weeks later. I've made probably 50 national commercials. And I became rich within a very short amount of time. And this was a nice Jewish couple that managed children. And they found out that I had no parental protection. And they started a savings account for me. And they put me on a budget. And they made me take my money and buy an apartment in New York City when I was 21. So then I started auditioning for first commercials, then television series. And then one day the call came. And uh, they said, oh, you're going to go and audition for Robert Altman. It's a new Broadway show coming, and it's about James Dean. The show was Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. I didn't know who Robert Altman was, to be quite honest with you. So anyway, I went to this audition. I only had a couple of pages of the script, and I went in. I was going to read for Scott Bushnell, so I was like all prepared. I'm going to go read for this guy, Scott. And I had to go on 57th Street to this apartment, and it was about James Dean in Texas. And I thought, should I wear a hat, like a cowboy hat? Or... And I thought, you know what? No, just be yourself. Just go in and be yourself. And I did, and I went in and I read for Scott Bushnell, who turned out to be a woman. It was Scotty Bushnell, and it was Robert Altman's producer. And we read the scene. Then there was this little knock on the window. And this gray-headed man stuck his head out, and he said, Hi, Mark. And Scott said, Oh, Mark, this is Bob Altman. And Bob said, Well, that was really great. Why don't you come back in three days? And here's the script, and Sandy Dennis is going to be in the play, and um, also Karen Black is going to be in the play. And so you go and read this, and you come back, and I'm going to have you read with Sandy. So I took the script, and... 
I read it. For those of you who know, come back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean is about a James Dean fan club in Marfa, Texas. And I'm the vice president of the fan club, a gay boy. But I am having a relationship with Sandy Dennis. It took place in 1955 and then 1975 on the anniversary of James Dean's death. I was the first part of a transgender person. I played Joe, and Karen Black played Joanne. And they said, oh, by the way, Cher is going to be in the show, too. My head just exploded, right? So that began the serious part of my profession. We began rehearsals, and on the first day of rehearsals, there were 200 photographers in the street to take pictures of Sandy Dennis, Karen Black, Cher, Kathy Bates, Sudi Bond, and me. And we started our journey. And we spent a year together doing the show on Broadway. And then afterwards, we shot the movie. And that was it. And I was off to the races. Some storm out there, ain't, ain't it, it, though? Look at Cho. Where are them new photo play magazines? Well, now, I haven't unpacked them yet. Why? You just, you know, been waiting for them. Well, now, there's something in there I think you're not going to want to see. What? What is it? He's in love with me. Was being a gay actor in Hollywood different than New York? At that particular time, 1985, 1986, it was terrifying to be a gay actor in Hollywood. I was instructed when I first moved here that I wasn't allowed to live in West Hollywood, anywhere in the 90069 zip code, that I would not ever set foot in a bar because the agencies kept people in the bars to look for other agencies' gay clients and then sabotage them. It's very cutthroat because at the time, AIDS was everywhere. And it was something that people didn't want to talk about. But you'd see a guy and six months later, you'd run into him on the street and he was an old man. As an actor, it was the love that dare not speak its name. It was a completely different world. And in this closeted town... You were cast in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which is notorious for its gay subtext. I'm scared, Grady. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, and she's female, and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me. Look, I don't care if you believe me or not. Hey, I believe you. You've had some scary dreams, okay? David Chaskin wrote it as a gay movie, but when people ask him about it, he said... Oh, no, Mark was just so gay that he gayed up the whole thing and he destroyed this movie. And he did that for 30 years until I busted him in a uh, documentary called Never Sleep Again. And now I'm doing a documentary which is about why boys like me disappeared in Hollywood. Somebody would get famous and you'd say, like, oh, my God, he's so good. Like Mitchell Anderson. He's so good. And then all of a sudden he's gone. We hid. We had to because it wasn't safe. And it was like nobody wanted you. When you start getting fag-bashed on a national or international level, I was a boy who ran from Kansas City to New York to be safe. I didn't come to have people throw rocks at me on television and say, oh, you know, he's such a fag, or, oh, you know, like he screams like a girl, or he ruined this movie. It was my own personal nightmare. Many, many times about the Nightmare on Elm Street thing, I would go like, God, why me? Why did I end up in this movie? They called the gayest movie of all time. Freddie only kills boys. I'm in bed with my best friend. I'm naked half the time. I have an S&M gym coach who tries to rape me and then gets killed. 
why did I end up in this movie? When you cast the male lead in the victim role and then have him scream for 90 minutes, you're going to have some people going, well, that's not the manliest performance I've ever seen. It just boggles my mind, and it's straight, guys. And I say, is that what you really think of women? That the worst thing that you could call me is a woman? And you're attracted to women? I screamed in Nightmare on Elm Street exactly the way a person who was going to be murdered would scream. I didn't scream like a boy. I screamed like a person who was about to be murdered. Because I was playing what was traditionally a woman's part, it terrified straight guys. And they couldn't deal with it. They couldn't deal with there was a woman hero, that a woman was going to save a boy because Kim, my screen partner, she never abandoned me. She was the hero. And what they really couldn't get their minds wrapped around, and I got this from a Yale dissertation, is it's called Reconsidering Jesse, is everybody's like, oh, you know, Mark's so gay or Jesse's so gay and all this. And the professor at Yale who teaches this in a queer theory class said, no, the gay person in that movie is Freddie. Freddie's the one that's pursuing Jesse. Jesse's not pursuing Freddie. And if you notice in all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, he's vicious with girls. Like his claws come up between Heather's legs in part one. He's a maniac towards women. But in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, he's seducing me. He never hurts me. He caresses my face. He almost kisses me at one point. And any boy who's interested in me, he kills him. Hindsight is amazing, but did any of these things seem suspicious at the time? I realized in the middle of filming, and I was like, I mean, literally my hair caught on fire. I was like, oh my God, I'm in my nightmare. And this portion of my life, I always said I would entitle it Scream, comma, Queen, <laughs> My Nightmare on Elm Street, because I realized right in the middle of shooting this thing that I was in my nightmare. I mean, this was bad. What was going to happen to me? And I knew when this movie came out, the people that recognized it immediately were 14-year-old boys. And they walked into the theater and they went, he's a fag. And it started like a whisper and then it became a roar. And when they realized that they had a multi-million dollar franchise on their hand, they brought Wes Craven back in, and Wes Craven cut a deal with them that they would pretend that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 never happened and just jump from one till three. It just never happened. When people talk about the movie, they're talking about me. I am Jesse. I am that boy that they're talking about. And it destroyed my self-confidence. And people had thrown rocks at me, had beat me. I had gotten to New York. I had dragged myself out of, like, basic poverty in the Midwest to become a movie star. And I let some man who wrote a movie as a joke destroy me in a way that nobody else had ever been able to do. And I don't even know him. I don't know why he did it. I mean, he sabotaged his own career. He never wrote a movie again. And I want to ask him why. I just want to ask him why face to face. And I don't care if he gets up and walks out of the room and won't answer the question. I don't care if I offend him. I don't care whose feelings I hurt. I don't care if I ever work in Hollywood. I don't care if I ever make a movie. I don't care if I'm ever at a convention again. I want to know why, in God's name, did this man do this to me? Because he was rewriting the movie the entire time. I have the original script. 
And he would point out points. He'd say, like, when I'm dancing in this one scene, and it's a favorite of straight guys for some reason. I don't know why they love me in this bedroom scene. But he pointed this out in the documentary. He goes, look, that was the actor's choice to be so gay in this. But when you look in the script, which I have, it says Jesse bumps his butt against the drawer two times, takes a pop gun out, pretends to be masturbating, and pops it as the girls walk into the room. And on the door, it says, no chicks allowed, right? And it's like, I didn't write that. I was just a good, faithful servant, and I was an actor in the way that I was trained to be, and I respected the writer, and I read what was on the page, and I played the part, even though I was so scared in the middle. I never stopped playing the part, and I want to know why he did it. And when I get the answer, I'll be done. But this is my story. This is the story that I have to tell. It's interesting to some people because I was in a horror movie called Nightmare on Elm Street. Or I was in a wonderful movie by Robert Altman called Come Back to the Five and I'm Jimmy Dean. That's just my buy-in. If you're playing poker, those two things are my buy-in. And then I'll tell you about those things if you want to listen to it. But you've got to listen to my spiel about HIV and about bullying. And that's what I'm going to trade you. I will talk to you about Freddie if you'll let me tell you how to take care of yourself in the world. In life, I got a front row seat. I definitely did. I earned every line on my face. I've earned every bit of it. We really haven't talked about HIV very much, but when I was diagnosed, I was dead man walking. I was diagnosed with zero T cells and cancer, pneumocystis pneumonia. I was the full nine yards. I've been on protease inhibitors for 16 years. And I want you to know my future, no matter what, is great. I'm a happy person. They stole it from me for a little while. But the biggest blessing I have in my life is I like myself. I look in my eyes and I always come down on my side. I am a friend to myself, even when it's really rough. And sometimes it is. But I'm happy. This has been a conversation with Mark Patton. Although he still does the occasional horror convention and is producing a documentary about his nightmarish experience, these days he spends most of his time running his interior design business with his partner Hector in Mexico. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Jesse, it's okay. It's all over. <laughs> Did you ever see heaven right in your arms, saying, I love you, I do? Well, the dream that was walking and the dream that was talking and the heaven in my arms was you.